He will hold me fast. It's really the subject of the sermon today, that God's promises are an anchor for our soul. It really picks up on, obviously, the text from last week as he continues to to drive home the, uh, the security of the believer because it's anchored in God's promises and in Christ himself. And that his, that his promise, that his grace, and that his work is uh, unchangeable and irrevocable. We come this morning to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Hear then the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited and obtained the promise. For people swear by something that is greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it. With an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone before as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning because we want to hear from you. We want to worship you. We want to honor you. We know that to do that, we need your grace, your presence, and your power your goodness at work within us. So even now as we sit under your word, would you, you speak it to our hearts and to our souls with power that we might indeed find ourselves anchored in your promises that are ours in Jesus. For we ask and pray it in his name. Amen. An anchor, a boat anchor, is in many ways a lifeline. Right? It's put on the boat so the boat doesn't drift away. When a boat is in harbor and at anchor, it keeps it from drifting into other boats. It can keep it from drifting onto the rocks. It can keep it from drifting out to sea and be lost. The anchor holds it in place as a lifeline. In a storm, uh, the anchor being down can steady the ship and help keep it on course and help keep it from foundering and sinking. He's telling us in here that uh, in this text that the promises of God are an anchor for the soul. And that this anchor follows Jesus into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he secures for us all that is given to him as our Savior, as our head and as our Lord. You know, the believer's hope, and this is what I hope in these couple of weeks that we get a fresh hold on. The believer's hope is, is not that we are strong enough to keep ourselves. Because if that is where our hope is, we will be sorely disappointed, right? Our hope is not that we are strong enough to keep ourselves from drifting away, but our hope is that he is strong enough to hold on to us. And so our hope is not anchored in our own strength. Our 
Our hope is not anchored in the hope that I can pull it off and I can be good enough or I can be strong enough or I can make this happen and so He will accept me. But our hope is anchored in Christ who ever lives, who is a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Praying for us. Presenting His blood and His atonement for us. Covering our guilt forever before the throne. And so let's take a few minutes and just think about, because I think in some ways we, we, we hear these things and they make sense to our heads, but they don't always have the impact they should. And I think we need to take a minute just to think about what it means that God makes promises. Makes promises to us. The free and the sovereign and the almighty God who is not required to do anything and doesn't owe us anything, but that that God chooses to make promises to us, bind himself, and to make oaths, as the text goes on to say. So in verse 13, it tells us that the Almighty God of His free and sovereign will decided to make a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, right? We see in 13 when God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, and since he had no one greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, surely I'm going to bless you. In verse 17, it says that when he wanted to show the heirs of the promise, right? We see in verse 17, when God desired, he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the un unchangeable character of his purpose. That he chose to take an oath. That he added an oath on top of his promise. As if his promise wasn't enough. The promise of God. As if the bare word of God alone, whose yes is always yes and his no is always no. But he makes a promise and then he says that on top of the promise he makes an oath. What's the difference between a promise and an oath, you ask? Glad you asked. A promise is when we give a solemn assurance that something is going to happen. Right? We make a promise. We, say, we state positively uh, our intention to do something. I promise to uh, take you to the aquarium on Monday. We're going to take our grandchildren to that aquarium. So, <clears throat> you know, but there's a problem. I'm stating my intention. I'm telling you my fixed purpose uh, of what I intend to do. And it tells you that I have every intention in my power to do it. Now, an oath goes beyond that. An oath is a solemn promise that you make, but the oath invokes uh, a higher power, invokes something greater than yourself. Generally, the oath involves uh, invoking God. To say that you're going to, to do something. You, you take it up a level in an oath. Invoking God as a witness. We do it in a courtroom. You know, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Right? When we swear. And we do that to dispel doubt. Now, maybe you, you might doubt my promise. I might be trying to convince you of something. Like, no, really, I'm going to do it. I promise I'm going to do it. And you're not, you're not believing me. And, I, and if I say, well, I swear I'm going to do it. By God. And I invoke the Lord, you know, and to say as, as a witness into what I'm doing. It says that, that 
settles thing, right? The oath is the final word. That's what he says in verse 16. For many people swear by something that is greater than themselves, and then in all their disputes, the oath is final, right? It's a final confirmation. There is nothing higher by which I can swear to try to convince you to dispel your doubt about what I'm saying. And so the oath, there's no one higher. So you, you swear by the highest source of accountability possible. But when God takes an oath, he's got a small problem, if you call it a problem. Nah, I mean, it's not a problem. Sorry about that. Uh, but he has no one higher to swear by. So when God wants to, he makes a promise, right? He tells you what he's going to do. He promises what he's going to do. And then he says he's going to take this oath, but he has no one to swear by but himself. And so in essence, what he says is, I am who I am. I swear by myself, by who I am as the almighty God who is truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life I am. See, human oaths are necessary and Let's be honest, they're necessary because you and I lie and sometimes deceive, right? It's the nature of human beings. So our oaths can be necessary. When I go to give testimony in a court, I've got to give an oath to dispel doubt that I'm going to deceive you or to tell you something that's not true. They're, they're necessary, but obviously they're not necessary for God. He doesn't need to take an oath. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. Verse 18, it says, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That by his very nature, who he is. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we are faithless, which often turns out to be the case, even when we make promises, even when we take vows, sometimes we prove faithless. That's the nature of our human failure and weakness and sin. Even if we're faithless, though, he remains faithful. This is not a problem God has. He cannot deny himself. He is who he is. He is truth. He is faithfulness. He is, by his essence and his nature, the source of all light and truth in the universe. So when God takes an oath, he does it purely out of love and grace. Does he need to take an oath? He's under no obligation to take an oath. He doesn't need to take it to dispel doubt about his word, or at least he shouldn't have to. Purely love and grace for our encouragement. Because the truth is, the weakness lies in us. The doubt lies in us. The times we may come to doubt we may come to worry and be anxious about ourselves and our souls, right? Our lives, this life, the things that we suffer, the storms that we go through, the pain, the loss, the sorrow. And there are times that we find ourselves weak. And it is for our weakness that he takes the oath on top of his word and his promise that he swears by himself. And when God swears, when he takes this oath, he is doing nothing more than actually declaring his will, telling us what he's going to do. Right? And that's really what we're doing in all of those things. It's what we're doing, what our intentions are. 
But with God, he's not. See, when I promise something that, you know, if this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen or if I don't get sick or the flood, you know, if the floods don't rise or, you know, all the different things that could happen to stop what I am promising to you or interfere with it or just in my human failure, I'm like, you know what? I woke up, I got a headache, I just don't feel like it. But when God declares his will, his will be done. Right? It, w- it will be done. God, God is not a wish or a hope that I'm going to be able to make this happen. When God does it, when God says it, it will be done. It is his, just his word, his intention, what he will do as the almighty sovereign God over all circumstances and all things at all times. And if he says he can do it and he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Right? And this is what we know about his word at all times. We're told that his word goes out and it never returns void. It always accomplishes that for which it was sent. It's like the word and the fiat at creation when he says, let there be light and there was light. That is how it is with everything that God does, everything he declares according to his will. If he says, let there be, or I'm going to do it, there it is. Right? He does it. It happens according to his sovereign will and purpose. So let's back up for a minute. He made this promise to Abraham in verses 14 and 15 when God made a promise to Abraham. uh, Since he had no one greater, he swore by himself and he said, surely I'm going to bless you, right? And I'm going to multiply you. And thus Abraham, uh, having waited patiently, and he did wait patiently for a long time for the, the child of his old age, for the son of promise, the child of promise to be born, Isaac. He waited a long time, patiently waiting, and he obtained the promise of what God had sworn to him. So, what does this have to do with you and I? <laughs> right? He made a promise to Abraham, some 1,000, 2,000, what, 3,000, I don't know, some thousand, millennia ago. He made a promise to Abraham and he fulfilled it. He was faithful. That's just. This is good, but what does it have? This is the New Testament, right? We're, we're studying about Jesus and what he has done. What does this promise to Abraham have to do with you and I? In verse 17, he tells us who he's talking to. Right? In 17, he said, when God desired to show more convincingly to who? To the heirs of the promise. So these are his current writers at the time, and now as we have his word, it is to us, to the heirs of the promise, he's talking to us, because the oath that God swore is inherited by all of his heirs, all of the heirs of Abraham, all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are heirs to the promise of Abraham. And I want to show this, I'm going to hopefully not overwhelm you with it, but I'm going to pull just a bunch of scriptures together and walk through them and just show you what the scripture says. Because the question is this, who are the heirs of Abraham? Many people will tell you, well, obviously it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's the father of Israel. Israel had 12, you know, and there's 12 tribes, and he's the father. Israel, you know, the heirs of the promises of Abraham, right? He's the father, the grandfather of Israel. But the scripture says that's not true. 
So in Romans chapter 9, verse 8, it says this. This means, and you have to read Romans 9, verses 1 to 7. I'll let you do that for homework. But what this means, what he says there is that this, that the children of the flesh, these are the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham by flesh, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Rather, but it is the children of the promise. Right, so the promise runs on different track, right? So you got the flesh, you've got ethnic inheritance, you've got physical descent, and he said the heirs of Abraham, the children of Abraham, are not the ones that run on that track, but rather on the track of promise. They're the children. The promise, right? The children of the promise are the ones who are counted as the offspring. Not ethnic Israel, not physical Israel, are the ones who are counted the heirs of the promise. So who are they? Galatians 3.16 says this. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well, who are his offspring? That's the question we're answering, right? But it does not say to offsprings. It's not plural. So he's not talking about Israel as a mass, right? He made his promise to Abraham and his offspring, but he was referring to one. And the offspring is Jesus Christ. So in the end, the promise to Abraham and his offspring is not to a physical Israel, but to Christ. And he will be the one who inherits. And we're going to see in a moment, I'll quote it again, where it says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is the inheritor. He is the only one who is the true Israelite, the true son of God, the true human, the true second Adam, the only one who actually does and lives and is sinlessly all that God had designed and desired for a human race to be, whether in Israel or or the general human race. The promise was to Abraham and and his offspring, Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20, 22, it says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus inherits and fulfills every single promise. Because at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, all the promises that they had were the Old Testament. And so he goes on in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says this, know then, know this, understand this, New Testament believer, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. His offspring are those who have the faith of Abraham, who knew and loved and followed and served the God of Abraham. It is not those who happen to be born into a particular family, even as that doesn't work now. Being born into a certain family, into a certain race, or into a certain thing doesn't save someone. The only ones who are saved, whether Israelite or not, even in those days when often all the kings of Israel were wicked and many of them led the nation astray, the children of God then, even as they are now, are those who are of the faith of Abraham, who know, love, and trust the God of Israel by faith. Which is why in Galatians 3, 29, he says this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. He has spiritual children only. Even in the Old Testament to now, the true children of Abraham at all times 
and under this promise are the children of faith. And and in the New Testament, because all the promise comes into Christ, because Christ is the inheritor of all the promises, because there was only one offspring to whom the promise is ultimately made, then anyone who is in Christ is the heirs of the promise and the sons of Abraham in Christ. All I want you to know is that when he says here he's talking to the heirs of the promise, I want you to have no doubt he's talking to you. He's talking to you. If your faith and your trust is in Christ, you are the son of Abraham, the daughter of Abraham, and heirs of all the great promises of grace. And so we have God's strong encouragement. That's what this whole text is about, is it not? In verse 17, he tells us that he's saying all this, he's doing all this for our encouragement. Right in 17, he says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we who have fled for refuge to him would have strong encouragement. God's desire. I mean, it's an, it really is a beautiful and amazing thing to open your heart to this, even this moment to hear. God wants to encourage you. Right? And he has said all these things and done all these things to show us more convincingly. To convince you. To show you abundantly and clearly the evidence of his love and his grace and his goodness towards you and the promises that are ours in Christ. And he says, I want want you to understand it. So I guaranteed it. I guaranteed it with a promise and with an oath so that by these two immutable things, you and I would find courage and strength and grace. It would be overwhelming, right? As the evidence, he wanted the evidence of his loving goodness to be so overwhelming that it would be undeniable to us, to show us more convincingly, if you weren't convinced already, right, to more convincingly show us. So it would be undeniable to our hearts and our souls, the unchangeable purpose of God. And what does he want us to understand? What is the unchangeable character of his purpose? What is it? What did he promise? What is the hope that he wants us to hold on to? That he says so we'd have all this encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And what is that hope? Well, we just said it in some ways that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That Christ is the unchangeable character of the purpose of his will that he's accomplished all things in him and every promise is yes in him all is fulfilled in him and is offered to us by faith so he is this unchangeable character of his purpose what is the unchangeable purpose it's nothing less than your salvation nothing less than your eternal life inherited in jesus christ given to you by free grace as a gift 
given to faith for those who know him and love him and who hold fast to him now and until the end. Titus 1-2, it says this, the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, can never lie, promised before the ages when he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. And there's an unchangeable character to that purpose that if he chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world, right? He says, and I want you to understand, my children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, I want you to understand the unchangeable nature of this salvation. He wants to convince us of his goodness so that we would be encouraged, and not just encouraged, right? You look in the verse that by these two things, we have this confirmation, the character of it, the unchangeable character of it, guaranteeing it with an oath, and it's impossible for God to lie or to change. We have fled to him, and he says, so that we would have strong encouragement. The, the word strong there is a word that is for powerful or mighty. And he doesn't just want you to know, I want you to feel a little bit of encouragement now and then. Right? He's like, no, I want you to have mighty, mighty encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before you in Christ. And so he, it's the kind of encouragement you and I need to hold fast. And it's God's gracious promises that he wants to give us what he spoke of back in verse 11. As the writer says, our desire, because it is God's desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Right? That's what he wants for you to have. That full assurance of hope to rest in the promises of God. And so he empowers us by his promises, by his word, by his grace, by the spirit who brings these things home to our soul. He empowers us to to hold fast and to never drift away till the end. Because hope and faith and the promises of God and his oaths are like an anchor, which is what he says. Uh, The image that he gives us coming out of this is it is like an anchor for your soul. Right? In verse 19, we have this. What is this? These two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, his promise and his oath and his encouragement. We have this as a sure and steady anchor for your soul. The unchangeable promise to save you irrevocable, chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. It is in the deepest water that the anchor is less likely to find bottom. Right? The best anchorage and the best way for it is to be in just enough water where the anchor, as a, as a ship starts to drift, digs in and you're, you're, you're sure and steady, you're locked into the bottom. And so the boat stays where you put it. But the deeper the water that you get out to sea, the anchor can't find a bottom. 
You can't find a bottom. I think they still haven't found the bottom of the bottom. But he says that we have a sure and steadfast anchor that has found bottom. That it is secure and it holds fast. It holds us fast. It holds us fast. Because the anchor of our hope, he says, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He uses his temple imagery again. We've talked about it a number of times. The temple had the outer courts, and then you had the priestly court, and then you had at the very deepest place of the temple, the inner place, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and the the presence of God is manifest in his Shekinah. It's God's presence in the center of his people, and no one could go in there. There was a curtain right, that, that represented our sin, that separated God from everybody else. But not Jesus. Because Jesus has torn the curtain in two. He has gone beyond the veil. He has gone into the very presence of God. He uses his temple imagery because the temple itself was nothing but a a picture, uh, an earthly picture of the heaven reality of God's presence. He doesn't really live in a little tiny room in the back of something. Right? It's just a picture of the inner you know, presence of God where he reigns and lives. And here it had to be hidden away behind a curtain. And it's just a picture of the inaccessibility of the presence of God to sinful people. But Christ has gone through the curtain into the very presence as our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek where he's at the right hand of the Father pleading for us, representing us as an anchor. Right, our faith And the promises of God are the rope that connect us to Jesus as an anchor inside the veil, beyond the curtain, in the very presence. Our anchor holds within the veil, behind the curtain, in the person of Christ, in whom every promise is yes. And as you are tied to Christ by faith, they're all yes for you. The purpose of God anchors Life is full of dangerous currents. It's easy to be shipwrecked. There's so much out there right now. I mean, I guess it's true in every age, but it feels, for many of us, feels like right now things are just talking about drifting, tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves of every crazy thing that's going on where we need an anchor for our souls. Part of spiritual maturity is being anchored in the promises of God, taking him at his word, believing what he has said, trusting in him wholly and fully, holding fast, steadfast and immovable. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.14. He says that we may no longer be children, that we would be mature, that we would grow up in our faith, that we would what? Then no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind and doctrine and crazy thing the culture is saying and doing right now. human cunning and the craftiness of schemes, that we would not be to and fro, but that we would be anchored in the promises. 
Let me return and close just in verse 18, where I think there is just this wonderful phrase that describes us. I know it describes me. I assume it describes you. That by these two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we, we who have fled for refuge, would find encouragement. We who have fled to Christ. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give rest to your souls. That your soul will find safe haven. That your soul will find sure and steady anchorage. Does your soul long for safe harbor? Right? Does your soul long for a, for a strong and steady anchorage in the wind and the waves of all that is going on? And it seems fit to destroy us and to founder everything. From a wind-tossed world, he says, we who have fled to Jesus. I encourage you this morning. God has gone the extra mile to give you strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. And so have you done that? Have you, have you fled to Christ and taken hold of him by faith? Put your faith and your trust in him as the one God has provided to cover your sin, to provide forgiveness, and to be your forerunner into the, an eternal life in the presence of God. If you haven't put your faith and your trust in him, I encourage you to fly to Jesus. My friends, will you take him at his word? He wants us, it's just astounding, he wants us to be convinced. He wants us to understand. He wants us to be encouraged and so to have courage. Will you rest your soul on his promises? Right When all outward encouragement seems to fail. I don't know where you're looking for your encouragement whether it's in people or in circumstances or in finances or in the, you know, how things are going in the world, how things are going out there and you're encouraged when they're going your way and you're not encouraged when you're not going. Well, these guys, it wasn't going their way. Where do you find your encouragement? When all outward encouragement is failing, when the storm has torn your sails, when you feel like you're limping at sea, do you remember that there is an anchor for your soul, that God promises They will not fail. That his oath is sure. That he has spoken and he will not revoke it. And he has spoken it over you in Christ. Jesus holds the rope that anchors us. He holds holds the business end of the rope that holds us. My friends, we need to flee to him every day. In all of life's storms, we have this anchor in the promise and in the oath of God, the fixed, unchangeable character of his purpose, his promise to save his people, and that is you if your faith is in Christ. So when guilt or when doubt or when sorrow are heavy on the soul, you have to remind yourself, I have God's promise, I have God's oath. In times of trouble and of trial and weakness, there are two unchangeable things by which to anchor your soul. God's eternal promise, God's sworn oath, Jesus is the eternal final yes 
to all of these promises. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great and precious promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that by faith you have adopted us into the family of faith and that we now are the sons and the daughters of Abraham, heirs according to the promise with the hope of an eternal life that is in Christ. Father, if there are any here today who have not put their trust, pray that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes that they might see Jesus to be the true anchor for their soul. And for all of us, teach us to take you at your word, to trust in your promises, to ground ourselves and be anchored in your grace that is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.